Hey everyone, my name, as Skip said, let me, let me see this. Does this happen every week? Okay. It's just one of the many new skills that ministers have to learn these, this season. Um, okay. My name is Sam Kennedy. I am the RUF campus minister at UNC Wilmington, the, um, the Eastern North Carolina school with no football. <laughs> so I am uh, so glad to be here. And uh, we have quite a few students actually that come from this area, a few students that have been through RUF uh, who actually you know, grew up in this church. And I've been aware of y'all and your ministry for a while, been friends with Tom Hart and now Skyler and Dory. And um, we was actually just at a conference last weekend with the, the ECU crew. And man, oh man, I, I just am so glad to be here. Uh, really heartbroken at the circumstances uh, surrounding me being here, but so glad to be of use to you all and, and of service to Christ and the gospel. And anything that I could do to help Dave out, I want to do because um, y'all may, may not be aware of this, but uh, outside of this church and just in the Presbytery, um, he has been a, a father and an older brother and a friend and a pastor to so many of us, especially guys in RUF. And so um, you all are really incredibly fortunate that, um, that he gets to be your pastor. And uh, I'm so glad to be here. And so even some friends of mine from college are uh, here. Uh, so this is just awesome. Um, I, just a little bit about me. I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. My, my family moved there uh, right before high school, so I claim it. And uh, moved back there after graduating from Chapel Hill and started working for a youth ministry called Young Life. And uh, worked for Young Life there for about 10 years and then started working as a um, college pastor and uh, music director at a local church called Christ Community Church. And then came on staff with RUF in the fall of 2019, right before the bottom fell out of everything and we all just started living online. But I'd love to uh, direct your attention uh, this morning to uh, the passage printed in the bulletin, Luke 24. Uh, starting in verse 25 and then uh, kind of skipping up uh, to verses 36 through 49. And then uh, if you're following along uh, in your Bibles, if you also just kind of put your thumb down in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, we're just going to hop over to there towards the end of the sermon. Uh, but we're going to mostly stay in Luke 24. Now, this passage in Luke 24 is, you know, immediately after Christ's resurrection, and we're meeting up with Christ as he encounters these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So they're walking away from Jerusalem, away from the site of Christ's execution, and um, they're kind of fleeing the scene, as it were, discouraged, downcast, despondent, just full of, uh, you know, un disbelief. And um, Jesus meets these two disciples, um, Cleopas and an unnamed other disciple on the road to Emmaus. And this is what he says. This is the word of the Lord. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, 
to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Now, moving on to verse 36, those two disciples, after recognizing Jesus, have now run back to Jerusalem and met up with the rest of the disciples uh, who are huddled together in fear. And starting in verse 36, uh, it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it. And ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then looking back to Luke 13, Jesus says this. This is the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, We are foolish, slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets had spoken. Lord, we do ask that you would help our unbelief. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that can have faith. Give us hands that are ready to do your will. Lord Jesus, you say that the grass withers and the flowers fade, that your word stands forever, that it all must be completed. So Lord, help us to believe these things. Um, Attend to the preaching of your word, we ask. 
Um, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Oh. So um, I just want you to um, think back to about a, um, if you'll go there with me, and I know it might be a little painful to go back there, but imagine like a year and a half ago. This is the, the spring of 2020. Um, every month, the RUF campus ministers uh, get together and we have uh, prayer calls, um, usually over Zoom. And so Zoom fatigue had yet to set in at this point. And so we're having a, a prayer call with some of the campus ministers from around Georgia and North Carolina. And we're just kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. Students are starting to move away from campuses. Um, we're, you know, people are losing their minds where there's like the world is collapsing. It, it really did feel like, for a person in college ministry, it felt like, is our college campuses even gonna be a thing anymore? Or are people just gonna, you know, get their, you know, get a diploma from Facebook or something like that? Like what is gonna happen? And so we're all just catastrophizing everything and we're, we're, we're kind of terrified. And, um, you know, and this is, we thought 2020 was gonna be the really bad year. And then 2021 came along and was like, hold my beer 2020, I'm gonna show you something. But so, you know, so the beginning of 2020, we're looking down at this year and, and I had, you know, I was a brand new campus minister um, kind of like Skylar, <laughs> he came in in the middle of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had all these great plans. I mean, campus-wide revival was, was about to happen, I knew it. You know, it was imminent because of my awesome plans. And then and not just campus-wide, but city-wide and then, you know, regional and worldwide. But starting in Wilmington at UNCW's campus, I was sure. And then all of these plans just got thrown in the dumpster and lit on fire and then dumped in a landfill and washed out to sea, and then a, you know, a meteor fell on top of them. That's how it felt. And uh, anyways, I was talking with Tom Hart, who many of y'all know, uh, and he was my prayer partner for that day. And I was just talking, I was just unloading all this anxiety that I had and complaining about you know, all the great plans that I had that now you know, were thrown in the dumpster. And Tom said, well, Sam, let me pray for you. And what he prayed for me, I, I, rem I still remember the words, and I think of them often, because they changed the way that I thought about my circumstances in, in a really profound way. And he could have prayed any number of things, like, Lord, please help Sam not, not complain so much, <laughs> just go home and love his kids and his wife and be patient, or... Um, you know, uh, God, uh, would you just give Sam um, some joy right now? Or you, would, would you help Sam um, have more faith? What, all of which were necessary and, and you know, would have been good prayers. But instead he said this, Father, would you help Sam to see and believe that he is living right now in the middle of a fulfilled promise? that he is living right now, that we are living right now inside of a kept promise. 
that God has made promises to his church and to his people, and that every single one of those promises must be fulfilled. Now, people can do this sometimes to us, and it's very well-meaning. They try to kind of like, you know, paint this uh, rosy kind of silver lining on whatever cloud that we've got. And that can feel kind of like they're missing where you're at. But at this moment, when Tom said this, it didn't feel like he was doing that at all. It felt like he was taking my eyes off the, the trees of my frustration and the trees of my experience and kind of looking at the great forest of God's promises, of the big story that our little life stories are a part of. And I think what he was doing is helping me um, interpret the facts and the events of my experience. Uh, Paul Tripp says this, he says, uh, human beings do not live based on the facts of their experience, but upon the interpretation of those facts. Meaning the thing that you draw life from, the thing that you draw meaning from, is not primarily the things that happen to you, or the things that you're around, or, or the things that you do not just the facts of your experience, it's not just the data of your life, but it's actually how you interpret those, those pieces of data. And so he was helping very, very kindly, very pastorally, helping me interpret the facts of my experience in light with the truths and the great promises of God in scripture. And actually, I think that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples in Luke 24. You know, helping these people who are discouraged because of the, the, the present realities and facts of their, you know, little life history at this point, and lining them up and kind of holding those up to the great promises of God and helping them interpret their present circumstances in the light of God's promises about the coming kingdom of Jesus. And so what I think Luke wants us to see this morning just like those disciples needed to see, is that because Jesus has risen from the dead, God's kingdom rule, his power has arrived just as promised. And he is right now, this very morning even, working to fix and to heal and renew and redeem and restore everything that has been broken, everything that has been lost and to bring all the way home everyone that is connected him, to him through faith. And that we, like the disciples, could actually look away from our present circumstances, whatever they may be, and look to God's promises and have confidence in his ability and his power to make those promises come true. So that's what I want to look at, uh, about the fulfilled promises of God from two perspectives. Once, uh, one, I want to look at the, the promise of Christ's kingdom, and second, I want to look at the presence of Christ's kingdom. So going back to Luke 24, what do we see about the promise of Jesus' kingdom? Just reminding that the disciples, remember, were, were struggling to understand the, um, the promises of God about his coming rule and reign in relationship to their present circumstances. Now, I, sometimes Christians throw around this term kingdom of God. 
or kingdom of Jesus. Um, and it bears some definition because sometimes people play kind of fast and loose with it. So here's what I mean when I speak about the kingdom of God. This is what I believe uh, the scriptures mean, uh, especially in the New Testament when it speaks about the kingdom of God. But you see this thread all the way through the Old Testament as well. The kingdom of God, I always tell our students, is about the ruling and reigning power of God exercised through and for the people of God in a particular place. It's the power of God working through and for and on behalf of the people of God in a particular place. So there's three things, and those are all going to be important for us. Now, where do you see that in the passage? It's actually a little bit further up in Luke 24, 21. The reason these two disciples on the road are so discouraged is because they had this expectation, it says in verse 21, that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel. I mean, that language is just like loaded with meaning. That he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Why did Israel need redeeming? Well, you know, for centuries, they had been in an occupied land, you know, living under the thumb of this foreign government. They had been this um, kind of oppressed minority group, the powerless, you know, the, the, their way of life, their morality uh, kind of ridiculed, their customs were maligned and degraded. And they were living at the bottom. And they were ready to be back on top again. Back on top like in the days of, you know, that, that great anointed king, David, or Solomon. That, that, that God would rescue Israel from all her enemies. This is what the Psalms talk about often. That when, when the great Messiah comes, when the king comes, then all the enemies will be judged. You know, the land will be purified and be um, given back to God's people and they'll live in peace and power and prosperity once again. Maybe even they're thinking about the, uh, you know, like a new exodus will happen. Just that, that a figure like Moses would come and redeem Israel, re redeem God's people from under this oppressive power that was enslaving them. So, you know, you know judge the enemies or you know, maybe even they're thinking he's going to judge, you know, the Romans just like you know, all the armies of Egypt were judged and drowned in the Red Sea. That we would just win and win and win, and we'd win so much that we'd get sick of winning. That's what they were hoping for. And so they, that is in the Bible. I mean, that is part of the promise of the kingdom of God. That is part of what it looks like when God says that he will redeem his people. They had this particular hope that Jesus would be this uh, ruling, you know, um, warrior-like messianic figure. But their problem is, is that they had an incomplete picture. The problem was is that, they, you know, they really did understand some, some concrete things about the kingdom of God. That it was God's ruling power that was supposed to be exercised on, on behalf of a particular people in a particular place. I mean, so often uh, we forget about the this-worldliness of God's kingdom promises. That, that God's kingdom is, is merely about Jesus being Lord of my heart. Or Jesus being king over my emotions. 
You know, or we, we tend to think of the kingdom of God as, as purely speaking about heaven, this kind of otherworldly reality of God's um, spiritual presence and power. Whereas, or, or, or we can tend to think about the kingdom purely as the church of God. You know, the kingdom is, is really just all about um, God's church and church activities and, and uh, people getting together in church committees. Um, Lord knows how you could come to that conclusion, but... That it's all about stuff that's happening with the church. But, you know, properly speaking in the Bible, that, you know, the church are the citizens of the kingdom. The church is the physical outpost of the kingdom in this world. And when we gather together to worship and to have the sacraments, I mean, that, that's part of an expression of our obedience and you know, worship of the king. But that's not the entirety of the kingdom of God. There's this much bigger picture. So the, the problem that the disciples had is that they had this myopic, kind of partial understanding of God's kingdom promises. You know, Jesus had said in his very first sermon in, in Luke, uh, he had read Isaiah 61. He had talked about the coming of the Messiah. This is what he says. He's quoting the Isaiah scroll 61. Uh, he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so the, the disciples, the people who heard this are like, yes, the year of the Lord's favor. This is going to be great. But they forgot the other messianic promises. And they forgot earlier in Isaiah 53, where it talks about the servant uh, who was going to be rejected, despised by men, who would have no beauty to attract us to him, but he would actually be crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that was laid on him would bring us, meaning all those who have put their faith and trust and are not united to him. Uh, would bring all of us peace. That victory would come through defeat. They'd forgotten that. And that had produced in them this sense of uh, fear, of despondency, of unease, of lack of trust of God. And so here's what they decided to do. At that very moment, I'm convinced, they were like, well, now it's all up to us. Now our life is back in our own hands. I mean, you see the disciples uh, that, you know, they're all hanging out in that upper room, kind of figuring out what they're supposed to do. I am so confident, because this is just the way my heart works, and I think most people's hearts work, is that because their expectations of what God was supposed to do had been uh, shattered, that they were all kind of looking around, wondering who the first one was that was going to go back to their old life before they met Jesus. You know, was it going to be Matthew, the tax collector, you know, who had given up kind of on greed and extortion and had given all that up to, to live life in service and obedience to Jesus? Was he just thinking, well, you know, got to get back out there and start making some money? Or, um, you know, whatever uh, bars and, and brothels that some of those uh, followers of Jesus had been to, you know, whatever addictions or kind of false comforts that they knew were waiting for them, that they were just planning, okay, where, where are we going to run now that this, this hope has run out? Don't we do that so quickly? Um, this last week, we were um, 
we, you know, I, I said we were at this uh, fall conference uh, with the RUF students, and uh, I brought my two children there. I have a, a daughter, Hattie, who's six, about to be seven, and a son, Gus, who's nine, about to be ten. And uh, I was down at this pavilion kind of in the middle of camp, and it was late. The kids had had this really long day. And uh, our daughter, Hattie, and our son, our, our, my, my wife was there. She, my wife, Shauna, is putting them to bed. And Shauna was uh, putting them to bed in this kind of strange place, you know, where they didn't know everything and um, didn't know how to get around. And, and uh, my daughter was absolutely beside herself with tiredness, you know, like drunk with tiredness. And she's sitting in this little bunk bed, and my wife tells her, okay, I've just got to go talk to one of the other uh, wives that are here for a second. I'll be back in two minutes. And not 30 seconds later, my daughter is absolutely terrified. And she kind of wanders barefoot down this hill in the fog, finds me in this pavilion talking with a bunch of other students, and all of a sudden I see, I'm talking to these students and I see them look behind me and my daughter, tears are streaming down her face. And she's doing that kind of ugly cry where you also like lose your breath. So she's like, daddy, daddy. you know, like that. Daddy, I don't know where mommy is. I don't know where she went. I think something happened to her. And she's just beside herself. And of course, she never like wants me for anything. So at this point, I'm just like, come here, you know, and I'm hugging her and I take her back up to the cabin. And of course, my wife is there waiting for her. And my wife said, what did I tell you? What did I say? And she said, I don't, rem you know, I don't remember. She said, I told you I'd be right back. How long was I gone? I don't remember. I don't, a long time, 10 minutes. You know, when you're, when you're six, 30 seconds feels like 10 minutes because you've, you've only lived that. So it's like 10% of your life at that point. <laughs> and because she was unsure that my wife was going to keep her promise or because she had heard it partially and then just kind of filtered it through whatever she was feeling and encountering at that time, she went into total panic into total despair, and so she decided to take matters into her own hands. How often do we do that? I mean, how often do we find ourselves just thinking, well, it sure doesn't look like God is at work here. It sure doesn't feel like God is keeping his promise. I guess it's up to me now. So the problem is that they had this kind of selective hearing. And the problem, actually, Jesus' diagnosis is he, it's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith on God's uh, ability to keep his promises. And so what Jesus does, how Jesus addresses this lack of faith is actually really interesting. Um, Jesus, to help their lack of faith, does not primarily resort to helping them see. He helps them hear. You know, Romans 10 17 says this, that faith comes by hearing. Hebrews talks about how faith is the assurance of things that are unseen. That actually, if you want to grow in your faith, the way is not primarily to see more things or experience more things. It's actually to hear more things, to become acquainted with the promises of God. God. 
And so Jesus addresses their lack of faith first by doing a Bible study with them. Isn't that remarkable? And what he does is not just go, I mean, he does eventually say, hey, you know, touch my side, see me, look at, look at, look at me right here. But what he does in both instances is he points them to the scriptures, to Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he takes them on this, you know, journey, this safari through all of the Old Testament promises. You know, probably starting with Genesis 3, verse 15, where right after the fall, God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, Eve, one day there will be a seed from the woman. A child will come from the woman who will uh, crush the serpent's head, but his heel will be bruised in the process. Maybe then he moved on to, to Noah or Abraham and the patriarchs. Maybe he went on to David. Maybe he, you know, read and quoted from the Isaiah scroll. Maybe he talked about the new covenant in Jeremiah where God says that I will be with my people. I'll give them a new heart that I'll never leave them or forsake them. That I'll cause them to follow my commands and to keep my laws. That I'll sow righteousness and justice and peace in the world. But that all of that was going to have to happen by a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah that he had to suffer and die in order to keep all of God's promises. Because see, in Jesus' mind, if God has said it, it has to happen. It's totally inconceivable to Jesus that God would say something and then not back it up. Why is that? Because, you know, sometimes... I will make promises, uh, even though I love my children, I will sometimes make promises that I cannot keep. I will sometimes promise things that I intend to do or want to do or desire to do, but for whatever reason, like circumstances uh, line up and things get in my way and I just can't follow through. You know, the other week we had a Hurricane Larry come through uh, Wilmington, not the hurricane properly, but the waves from Hurricane Larry. And my son, Gus, really wanted to go surfing. And I said, you know, I had a bunch of appointments cancel in the afternoon with students. And so I said, Gus, I think I've got some time after I get done, I should get done right as you're kind of getting done with um, school, and let's go surfing together. We'll do this. And all day, I'm sure he was talking to his friends, like, I'm going to go surfing with my dad. And anyways, one thing led to another. I had a lunch meeting that ran long. I got caught in traffic. Um, and by the time I got home, it was just, it wasn't worth us driving out to the beach and getting everything out. And then, so I was not able to deliver on my promise because I'm a finite human being. And I often, uh, my promises, um, they, they can't keep up with my uh, ability. But God is infinitely powerful. He is a loving father, much more loving of a father than I am. And when he speaks something, it comes into being. I mean, God created the world by speaking. He didn't just say, ah, oh, it would be really great if there was light and dark and sea and land. He said, let there be light. And it happened because God's words are powerful. God's words always come to pass. Y'all, is there any possible way that God, in all of his infinite love, for you and for me, 
his love for this broken world, and all of his power that he holds everything in, the, in creation in his hands right now, that the, the stars spin according to his design. That a hair should fall from your head without it being Father's will. I mean, this is one of the great promises and truths of our tradition, this, this view of the providence of God, his care for his creation, his care especially for his children, in feast or famine, in rain or in drought, in seed time and harvest, that God is always at work, that he's always in control, even when it doesn't look like that. So as we move uh, from thinking about the promises of Christ's kingdom, and now we have to connect them to, to, to this, this present world. Like when, when these great promises, these powerful promises of God come into the world, what form do they take? What, what shape do they take? In what way do God's promises and what way does the kingdom come into the world? How is the kingdom present? To use Christ's language, uh, how is the kingdom of God at hand right now? Well, I would say, um, judging from uh, this resurrection account and, and judging from uh, some of Jesus' parables, that, that the kingdom primarily comes as seed. If you look in um, Luke 13, this is what Jesus says again. What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? What's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches? Now, of all the objects in God's creation, Jesus chose a seed to illustrate a point about the kingdom of God. Why is that? Well, he's speaking about the surprising power that comes from small beginnings in God's economy. That despite outward appearances, Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of God is growing, will continue to grow, and shall never be stopped. Because like a seed, God's kingdom survives and thrives and perseveres, even in adverse circumstances. Now, I, I learned a little bit about seeds the other week. And what's interesting is like the, the way that a seed looks depends actually on it, what it does to survive. Some seeds have sticky parts that get kind of picked up by animals and then they can travel and get planted other places so that they can persevere and grow. Uh, some seeds are really tiny and they can get carried on the wind. Uh, some seeds have like really hard husks so that, you know, animals or humans can digest them and then kind of pass them and leave them in other places. And that's how they can take root. Um, this is actually interesting. There's one seed um, called a protea that only germinates in the presence of smoke. The protea is this beautiful flower. And it only in a time of forest fire will the seed actually take root. You starting to see any connections with the gospel here? Any connections with the kingdom of God? There's a seed that was found in the ruins of uh, Herod the Great's temple. It's like a 2,000-year-old seed. It was a, a date palm tree seed. And it was kind of in the ruins, so you know, it was preserved, and it was in this dry area. And scientists in Israel took this, and they planted this 2,000-year-old seed 
And right now there are eight date palm trees that are growing in the middle of Israel that are from this 2,000-year-old seed. Incredible. Time can't stop it. Circumstances can't stop it. Like seeds persist. Seeds persevere. Seeds grow. Seeds survive. But the way that seeds start is small. This kind of small, inconspicuous, almost unnoticeable form. But you see this pattern all throughout the Bible, don't you? That, that God's promises kind of start in this seed form and then they, um, they survive. Then they kind of bloom and blossom and grow. In, it, we, we sang uh, the song by faith, which talks about Hebrews 11. And I love what it says. It talks about Abraham, who even though uh, Hebrews says he was as good as dead, like he's just this really, really old dude. And his wife is really, really old too. And they're just kind of sitting around at the twilight of their life. And then God promises them that they're going to have a child. Sarah laughs. She's like, no way. And Abraham, with kind of maybe a husbandly twinkle in his eye, is like, well, let's, let's try. Let's see what happens. And they have a child. But here's the crazy thing. And Hebrews says this. He died before he really saw the fulfillment of his promise. Abraham, from whom a great nation, God said, was going to come, only got to see one child. He just got to see the seed. He didn't get to see the full plant. All of these disciples who were around Jesus, all of them died, still hoping for the consummation of all of God's promises. Most of the saints throughout the church's history died still hoping and waiting for what was promised to come to pass. All of us, most likely, will die, perhaps, before we see God's kingdom come in its fullness. But that does not mean that the promises are not true. And that does not mean that the kingdom is not right now present and at work among us. Why? Because we can tell that if the seed is there, if the seed is present, then the tree will come. Friends, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. There are brothers and sisters right now in this church, in this community, whose lives have been transformed, who have moved from death to life because of the reality of God's kingdom ruling power exercising through his people in this particular place. The seed is here. The kingdom is here. God's promises are coming true right now. And if that is the case. The thing we have to ask is what are we supposed to do in response to that? If you're convinced that it's here, that the kingdom is here and is also coming, that something has started, that something has been set in motion 2,000 years ago by this little you know, seed group of Frady Cat disciples that are all uh, huddled together, that's now even now growing and drawing in people from all corners of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation being preached to and brought in, gathered in, embraced by the king into his kingdom, if you're convinced that that is true, how then should we live? Well, Jesus tells us. He gives his disciples uh, two instructions. 
First, he says, wait. Wait. Wait for my power. Wait for the next, you know, big season of um, my kingdom promises, the next big chapter that was going to be Pentecost, where he just pours out his spirit on the church to enable them to do uh, her mission. But he says, not just wait, because the kingdom, you know, is still coming. Waiting would not be necessary if it was all going to come at once, but waiting means, you know, there's this unfolding nature to it. But he also says, don't just wait, also be my witnesses. Waiting and witness, that's the job of the church in this in-between age that we live in. And what he means by witness is not just, you know, that you would speak about these things, and that, that is true. That is part of it. What he means by be my witnesses is, is don't just speak about the truth of these things, bear witness to them, live as if they are true. Live lives of obedience and faith and justice and beauty and righteousness and mercy and patience. Live as a countercultural people. Live as though Christ really did die for your sins. You really are adopted into the family of God. God has really put away all the guilt and shame of your history as far away as the east is from the west, that you really are washed clean, that you would live as if that's true. That you wouldn't try to just hold on to your life, you know, and like just bare knuckle, just like white knuckle, hold on to your circumstances, but you'd be open-handed. That you'd trust when... A horrible uh, prognosis from a doctor comes um, when uh, that phone call that you're dreading comes, when um, the temptation to live as though Christ really hasn't died, really hasn't risen, really won't be coming again to judge the living and dead, when, when the temptation to act conveniently as if those things aren't true comes across your screen, that you would be a witness to the reality of these things right now in this world. Um, I'll just close with, with this thought. Um, there, uh, there's this uh, naturalist, not a Christian, <laughs> Unitarian guy named Henry David Thoreau. Some of you are familiar with him wrote very movingly and beautifully about, uh, about the natural world, about God's creation. And he said this about a seed. He said, now listen, I'm not going to believe that a plant's going to spring up just from the ground where, where no seed has been. But if you point at a bare piece of earth to me and you tell me that a seed is there, I am prepared to expect wonders. Brothers and sisters, a seed is here. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Do you expect wonders? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to be a waiting and witnessing people? Would you help us to believe that your great promises really are true? promises of our uh, forgiveness, of free and full forgiveness for all those uh, who come to you through faith in Jesus. 
a, a promise of, of our adoption as sons. Lord, a promise of power from your spirit to enable us uh, to do your will, to repent and to grow and to change, to live like these things are true, that you really would, by your spirit, write your law on our hearts and cause us to do these things. Lord, help us to walk in the things that we were saved to do. And Lord, for anyone here who does not know Jesus, who is not united to him in faith, Lord, would you draw them? Would you call them? Would you give them ears to hear, Lord? Oh, please do not let them stand outside of Christ. Do not let them stand and vouch for themselves in the day of judgment. But Lord, would you cause the righteousness of Christ to fall on them and to cover all their sin? And would you give them faith? Would you draw them in? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.